0: We have skateboarding in the Olympics. I think every skateboarder should compete with an open bottle of ocean spray
1: juice. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of 80% Mental, the one podcast to rule them all. I'm Dr. Pete Olushaga, as I mostly always am, and I'm joined by Hugh Gilmore, as he mostly always is and i'm really looking forward to today's episode the games of the 32nd olympiad if you've been counting have just come to a close and we i say we i'm not sure about you i don't know whether you've enjoyed the games as much as i have uh, i don't know if it's your thing but we've enjoyed the game so much i've enjoyed the game so much that we thought it would be nice to have an episode dedicated to looking back at the tokyo 2020 uh no 2021 olympics uh but we're not just doing it alone. It's not just me and Hugh. We've got two of the very best joining us today to help us out. And first up, it is my pleasure to reintroduce, because they've been on the podcast before, it's my pleasure to reintroduce Dr. Chelsea Day, a sports psychologist at The Ohio State University, which I messed up last time, and is a specialist in clinical sports psychology and provides mental health and performance enhancement services to collegiate student athletes uh, Chelsea welcome back to 80% mental
2: thanks for having me I'm super excited
1: uh, I'm assuming all the information is correct by the way because I just ripped it from the last episode so if anything's changed then either you can tell us now or just tough I don't know
2: yeah no no I'm just just still same old same old <laughs>
1: just, just plowing on <laughs> how
3: would that approve if Chelsea had have been fired? and you do reading <laughs> like whoop, whoop.
1: i mean it would have just been it would have been in fitting with how this podcast's gone so far to be honest okay, so. with you but
2: a I fun am... fun time for everyone yeah. it's just the cool. tears and
3: chelsea still has her job <laughs> okay pete <laughs> yeah. well, oh, yeah.
1: hopefully you'll still have it when we finish recording this i hope uh, so i am i'm also delighted uh, to be able to introduce, to reintroduce Dr. Leah Washington, a professor of sports medicine and sports psychology, with a bunch of experience working from youth sports right through to pro sports, specializing in working with injured athletes and sports medicine professionals. Leah is also the biggest fan of the Olympics I have ever met, and <laughs> <laughs> it's tr- true. It's it's entirely true, and um, her uh, Facebook the daily Olympic Facebook reviews are a thing to to behold. So Leah, welcome back to 80% mental. I'm
0: so pleased to be here.
1: Um before we before we carry on, we've got a bit of an apology to make. Uh, we recently recorded an episode with Todd Cawthorn and I told Todd on that episode that he was the first guest that we've had back on 80% mental. Now, unfortunately, we've bumped his episode to later on in the series, so that's no longer true. So, sorry, Todd. Uh, You're not the first after all. Um, I'm absolutely just thrilled to have you guys here, uh, and I'm really looking forward to this uh, episode on the Olympics. Do you guys want some Olympic facts before we start?
3: Yes, please. Of course.
1: Okay. The 2020-21 Games are the fourth Olympic Games to be held in Japan. Does anybody know the other three?
0: They were in Nagano. Yeah,
1: Nagano 1998 Winter Games.
0: They were in um, 1964 in Tokyo.
1: And
0: yep. they were in – there was another Winter Olympics. Hold on.
1: <laughs> we, we've Sapporo? Got Sapporo? That's right. In 1972, I told you that Leah was the biggest Olympics fan in the world. The, Chelsea's just looking puzzled.
2: So the last episode we were on was about um, mental goats, and I think we have an undisputed uh, Olympic fan goat here right now. Listen, like, I can tell undisputed. you fun Olympic facts for days.
1: So okay, well, I've got another one for you then, Leah. If you if you're up for it, so. Uh, <sighs> now the pressure's on trivia so these are the i mean this is quite an easy one actually so these are the 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 second of three consecutive olympics to be held in east asia so the first Mm -hmm. one was well well, the last one i guess was
0: beijing no oh wait the last one
1: yeah oh pyeongchang pyeongchang winter olympics in pyeongchang obviously tokyo uh this year and what's coming next
0: For Summer Olympics, it's Paris, and then L.A., and then Brisbane.
1: Well, Winter Olympics is coming up in Beijing, so that'll be the third third consecutive uh, Olympics in in East Asia. This is all fascinating stuff. Um, Students listening, don't go to Wikipedia for your information, Uh, but for this, I think it's fine. Um,
0: Can I tell you my favorite, all-time favorite, fun fact about the Olympics?
1: Please. It has to do
0: with the 1972 Munich Olympics was the first Olympics that there was a mascot. And his name was Waldy and he was a dachshund and he was so popular. So he was a dachshund because at some point in the train, in the um, planning process, there was like a meeting at one of the committee members houses and one of their dachshunds had puppies and everybody was like, Oh, puppies. And, <laughs> So they picked the dachshund to be the mascot, and his name was Valdi. And he was so popular that they um, actually made the route of the marathon in the outline shape of a dachshund.
1: That's that's the best bit of that story. By
2: seriously, Miles. I told I, you is is that. that why bats? you have is that why you have an affinity for dachshunds? Um, I mean, it certainly helped.
1: <laughs> um,
0: but that is my favorite fun fact.
1: I, I like it. I've got I've got one more for you. It's a double barreled fact, Hugh. You like this one? Uh, three months after the applications had opened for Games volunteers, two hundred four thousand six hundred eighty applications had been received by the Tokyo Organising Committee. Now, the volunteers apparently, the volunteers at the venues were called the field cast, and the volunteers in the city were known as the city cast. That's cast without an e, by the way, in case anybody's, you know, raising an eyebrow and wondering about that. Um, but the names were chosen for them from from a shortlist. Do you want to know the other names that they could have been called? Yes, please. So there's yes. a shortlist short of three. So um, the the three shortlisted names, the other three shortlisted names were Shining Blue and Shining Blue Tokyo. <laughs> I, I don't know where that one came from. Um, Games Anchor and City Anchor. Which could have been problematic for the commentators, and my personal favourite, Games Force and City Force.
2: Oh, oh
0: man, like that one so much better! You know,
3: I, I, I kind of think it would be better to have called them uh, Shiny Cast and Bright Cast, and then you could contract the two together. <laughs>
2: To be the bright and shiny
1: cast? I'm not sure that's where shi- he was going Shiny with
3: it. cast? <laughs> <laughs> shiny and bright?
1: Never mind. It's early wet chances. Um,
2: wow. Yeah.
1: So, it is. Okay. So um, fun Olympic facts uh, aside, and if you want to share your fun Olympic facts, I'm sure Leah would appreciate them, uh, you can do that at EPM podcast on Twitter. You can email us. At eighty percent mental at gmail.com. and we're also give me, on.
0: Give me all your Olympic facts. I and we're we're
1: also on Instagram uh, at eighty percent mental. Eighty percent mental is all words. Um, right. Should we get started then?
2: Let's do this.
1: Okay, so I I just want to start really by. Asking you about your favorite moments of the games. We had two weeks of amazing sporting competition. Let's start with you, Chelsea. What were, what were your favorite moments?
2: So I'm going to start with a hot take that social media ruined the Olympics for me. Um, okay, so we'll start, just, we're gonna start, start on there. A positive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so now it's only up from here. Um, yeah, you know, so what was really hard for me is I remember in 1996, being a, a little girl, and sitting in my living room and watching Olympic coverage at night, and you know, in the morning, and just being able to, to watch stuff live and not know what was happening until I saw it with my eyeballs. And What my experience was this time, and partly maybe because I'm raising a a maniac of a toddler, um, you know, that, you know, sitting down to watch everything was recorded, which obviously there's a big time difference, certainly, but everything was recorded, but I'd hop on my social media and I'd see the results and I would even be trying to avoid it and I would be sliding up Instagram and see a floor routine. Well, obviously, like, I don't have the self-control to not watch it, so I'm watching it. And then it's less exciting to sit down and watch it in the evening. Um, and so that was like a huge bummer for me is really finding that like it would pop up. I'd have all these spoilers and I didn't want them. Um, so that was a, a big challenge for me. Um, in general. But then when I switched then to think about positives instead of all of my, uh, you know, less exciting thoughts, I... I'm very much about like human interest stuff. So I used to be about competitive, win, win, win. Let's see, you know, just the the underdogs win. And now I'm older and I'm a sports psychologist and I'm soft. And so um, <laughs> the exciting moments for me are like these human interest moments. So um, right leading up to the Olympics, uh, there was a special, a gymnastics special on Peacock, the channel Peacock and um, It was just talking about the lead up, showing uh, a handful of different athletes. So for me, um honestly, the greatest, my favorite moment of the whole Olympics was Suni Lee winning gymnastics gold. That, you know, watching the story, watching her story be told in a, this four episode series, I felt really like connected to her. And so it gave me like these warm and fuzzies of like, my girl, like, as if I knew her. I don't know her. I don't, I don't know any of these people. Um, and so that to me was my favorite moment. Just, uh, and, and probably a close second was, um, watching diving as a diver and watching some British gold. Um, and just really, again, these human interest things of, of watching athletes who have worked so hard and it's been out of their grasp and, and then, and then they get it. And so, far less to me about like the competitive and the win and more about like watching human, young human people who have devoted their lives to something like succeed in it. Um, so those are my two favorite moments.
1: Yeah. And I think we, we saw a lot of that. We saw a lot of those human stories and uh, you, you obviously you're talking about Tom Daly winning his uh, Olympic gold. Eventually. I
0: fucking sobbed. I sobbed. I was so excited for him. I watching him from like, all of the Olympics and like last Olympics when he like was on fire and then like kinda imploded in the last round in Rio and then like for him to come back and like have this amazing moment I was it was so
3: while knitting a
0: sweater. While While knitting knitting, a sweater Listen, if you're not on his knitting Instagram, what are you doing with your life? Get on it. It
2: was incredible. Jack of all trades.
1: Well just to just to clarify, he wasn't diving while knitting. (laughs)
2: But between dives, basically. Basically like I mean
0: basically
2: might as he well a have whole, been.
0: Did you see he made a cardigan and then he made a little like cozy for his medal to like keep it safe? And I was like, he's too pure for this world.
2: <laughs> we don't deserve him.
1: So Leah, Tom Daly aside then, what were your favorite moments from the from these games?
0: Favorite moments. Um in terms of like just ath- like athlete excellence, watching Carson Warholm break forty six seconds in the four hundred meter hurdles was I screaming at the television. I saw him break the world record in Doha Worlds, and then I was like, "This what is happening with this human being? There's no reason for him to be this fast." And then watching him <clears throat> with Kai Richardson in um, in the finals, and I was like, there's, it, there was so much anticipation in lead up to this race. And his, he's the most beautiful runner is like stride is incredible. I can watch him run for hours, but obviously I can only watch him run for 45 seconds. Um, <laughs> just unbelievable athletic ability. Um, it, same with like Caleb Dressel and his 100 meter uh, world record breaking butterfly was really amazing to watch. But I have to say, like, the the actual, the most joyous and exciting um, moment for me was watching the United States women's volleyball win the gold medal against Brazil Um, and just... The sheer delight on their faces, they dominated from the first serve, they beat them in straight sets, there was just no question, and they never got rattled. They just, if something didn't work, they were like, all right, we're going to regroup, we're going to come back, nothing fazed them, they had, they were all, and they looked like they were just having a great time the whole time they were playing. And then when they were interviewing Karch Karai, the end, their coach and he was like screaming for them and he loves them so much and he was so happy for them and it was just there was so much joy and happiness in that win and it was just i again sobbing crying screaming at the television um i get very i cry more at sports than at movies you guys um (laughs) without a doubt um but it was just
2: it was such a great moment and it was a great way to sort of like cap off the olympics uh, and Karch Karai, that I love that as well. He is one of the most sports psychology sound coaches to walk this planet. Like hearing him talk about how he implements sports psychology, that he is kind of that new wave of coach that doesn't beat them to the ground. Like he actually like cares about them as humans and knows that if, if they are humans, they'll thrive on the court. I love to see good, like, sports psych sound coaches win as well. So it was like really cool to see that, to see that he was able to coach that team to gold, even with coaching strategies that some old school coaches might uh, think are a little strange. And so that was a really cool thing as well. And they talked about how um, they
0: did a lot of work, particularly over the pandemic of when they weren't able to train and they were only able to talk to each other, of like acknowledging the emotional toll that it was taking on them and that when they were practicing and at the Olympics, that they were that they had this, like, built this community where they can say, I am nervous. And then they could say, yes, I am nervous too. Okay, let's acknowledge that and we can kind of work with it. And that there was no, that they were very open about um, just kind of all of the ups and downs of being there. And, you know, he, you know, Karsh Karai at the end of the semis, when they had beaten i think serbia and you know he's kind of asked a question you know those dumb like post-game interviews it's like what does this mean to you and you're like uh, oh, nothing <laughs> like what the fuck answer is that like what kind of que- what are we doing here these, don't, these interviews are so stupid um but he he said something to the effect of like i want them to get on the top of this podium and he got really teary eyed and he got choked up and he couldn't finish the interview. He just, he wanted these women to succeed so badly. And he, you know, he was saying, I never want to coach another team. I love these women to death. Like he, there's just such a genuineness about him Mm -hmm. that, I mean, there is, you know, he's the only person to have won a gold medal as a player, both on the hard court and um, in beach volleyball. And Now he's, I think, only the second person to have won both as a player and a coach. And I think, you know, his own self-awareness, you know, Chelsea, like you were saying that he like he is a very self-aware coach and he's a very and he's very in tune to sort of the the, what is going on with his team. And I think like you can't argue with the success that he's had.
2: Another fun fact about him. I'm pretty sure that the last time the three of us, Leah, we were in the same city was uh he spoke he was also he was also in that city he, he was our, he brought, he brought was us together. together the last time <laughs> we were all together so Aww. he also gets to be credited with that he's probably the only coach to bring the three of us together and win olympic gold
1: <laughs> well, i mean c- kudos to him um <laughs> I, I i think we, we we're seeing a lot of a lot of that a lot of people's favorite moments are those moments that show the, like Chelsea said earlier, the human side and the coaches who genuinely care. And I, I asked um, uh, our listeners earlier today uh, what their favourite moments were, uh, and a bunch of other random people on Twitter as well. And the, the the moments that came through, one of them that came through really strongly was uh, Gianmarco Tamberi and uh, Mutaz Essa Barshim, the Italian and the Qatari athletes who shared the high jump gold. And that came through as a really you know a a huge olympic moment for a lot of people and i didn't even know know
0: that was an option i was like they can share well they they did like they
1: they knew the rules so before the official even came over and started speaking to them or or as he was speaking to them you could see them kind of looking at each other and thinking like come on let's yeah we're gonna we're gonna do this yeah okay um but i I, I think
0: also you know you kind of forget like these people have at this level, like they've competed against each other a number of times. Like they know each other, you know, that all of these athletes are pretty familiar with like who everyone yeah. is.
1: Um, some some of the other moments that people talked about were um, one of my favorite moments, Charlotte Worthington, uh, the British BMXer, who landed a trick after messing it up in her first run. And I genuinely jumped off my chair when she did that. It was amazing. <laughs> Uh, Sifan Hassan, first athlete to win three medals, uh, participated in the 5,000, 10,000 and 1,500 meters. Even though I said them in the wrong order, that's still a pretty impressive (laughs) feat. And I think there were times when she was running the 1,500 heats in the morning and then the 5,000 in the afternoon or something like that, which is is ridiculous. Uh, Too many people to mention have highlighted the shared gold in the high jump. Uh, Dr. John Sutton, the editor of the Psychologist Magazine says, uh, Laura Muir, who won the Silver for Great Britain in the 1500 meters. Simon Loftus gives a shout out to the men's and women's volleyball. Uh, Gareth Davis says Simone Biles is bronze, but he also loved the way that all of the athletes uh, all celebrated each other's success during the, during the games as well. Uh, Matt Risby says Tom daly's cardigan. Um, <laughs> so another one saying uh, many moments, but the ones that tugged on my heartstrings again, showing how important those moments mm-hmm. were, were uh, Jamaica's Elaine thompson harrah setting a new Olympic record in the women's 100 meter uh, and the French basketball team winning bronze after being defeated in the semi-final because you could tell that it meant so much to them. Um, Hugh, I'm, I'm wondering and I'm fascinated to find out what your Olympic moments were. What were the things that really stood out to you during this uh, this Olympics?
3: Uh, Well, I I actually was quite touched by the the high jump. I think that was like a definite defining moment for me um, as to, you know, just what sport is all about. And it doesn't really matter, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's not that important. And to be able to share that with a competitor, I thought was pretty class. Um, But I mean, the other thing I did like Sky Brown winning, being the youngest person to win the, the skateboarding. Like that's that's just cool. And as I understand it, she's like lives in California and is half Japanese, half English. And I, just, I just find that so interesting that, you know, such a, a, you know, she's chosen a British identity despite living in America and uh, Japan. Uh, and that's really cool. Um, and it, I think, I mean, the other thing that I think also stood out to me that was maybe slightly controversial um, was the marathon, the medal ceremony of the marathons uh, at the finish. Uh, because if I'm right, you had uh, the Kenyan guy won, and then the two other guys... Kipchoge, yeah, I Yeah, Kipchoge won. But then the two other guys, if I'm right, were from Ethiopia originally, but were representing European countries. I was just like, that's... To me, I felt a little bit like that's class that you've got two people up there winning, winning silver and bronze, but they're not sharing a flag of the country that they came from. And I just kind of felt like... It'd be nice if, you know, you're allowed to bring up, you know, the flag of another part of your identity up on on as well as the flag of the country that you're competing for, uh, just to show a bigger, broader picture of, of who these people are. Because, you know, one of the things about medal ceremonies and stuff like that is that they're tightly controlled and I've been through a number of the, the talks that athletes have to go through. And like they're not allowed even to have a phone on them. They're not allowed to protest. They're not allowed to, you know, do anything out of the ordinary. And it's like it's really rigidly controlled. I'm just like, it'd be nice if we could see these as people, as humans, and not flags. You know, paint them and paint, let them paint themselves in their own colors. Um, so that's something that kind of struck me as kind of poignant. Like two guys up there wearing different colors, but from the same country. Um, so yeah, that's uh, what are your thoughts on that, Pete?
1: Um, I absolutely agree with you, Hugh, for a change. Um, like to, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the idea. I love the idea of athletes just being able to express themselves. And, you know, you said they're not allowed to protest. Some chose to protest anyway, which I think is, you know, fantastic and more power to them. Um, but, yeah, being able to express who you are as a human um, in what is perhaps a defining moment in your career, if not your life. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I agree with that. I loved uh, Sky Brown as well. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. You know, she, she messed up. She didn't mess up. She didn't execute a trick twice uh, in her first two runs. And then when she nailed it, because she could have gone for something a little bit easier. And then when she nailed it in that third run, you, you could see that joy of a 13-year-old just <laughs> all over her face. And then when she finished the run, and it was just such a wonderful moment. Uh, in the games for me uh, just seeing that that sheer kind of expression of joy so we are we're here with dr chelsea day and dr leah washington and we are talking about the olympics we're reviewing what we saw over the last few weeks and we've just been talking about our favorite olympic moments and some of the moments from you the listeners as well and i had a tweet this morning from at daily sports psych this guy called Steve Daly and he tweeted me uh, the story of Kelly Harrington who won the gold medal in the women's lightweight boxing and he tweeted a picture of her along with a quote which was I don't feel pressure about medals I'm just here to perform and to give my best a medal doesn't define me as a person I'm more than just a boxer I'm a person and a human being I have a loving family, a great community, and I have a fantastic job. And she's not the only athlete to, to have talked about that kind of stuff at this Olympics. You know, we saw Tom Daley talking about being in a completely different headspace to previous games. He talked about the impact of his family, of being a father, and how that put him in a completely different different mindset. Um, I, I I just wonder what your thoughts are on that, Um on the idea that athletes are talking a little bit more openly about that than perhaps we've seen them do previously, Leah, what, what do you think about about some of those stories?
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, I mean, even I think it was just yesterday or the day before that um, that Adam Peaty um, was talking about taking time off from swimming because he the the emotional toll that that competing at this high level had taken on him, mm-hmm. um, and talking about how he would rather die than lose. And I think that there are a lot of athletes who are sort of in that space a lot of times that this was, I think, the first Olympics that athletes have been a lot more vocal generally about sort of trying to be whole people. And part of it, I think also, like there's some interesting ways in which that manifests that like there's been such an emphasis on all of the mother's, who are competing, um, which, you know, there has been some challenges, I think, with COVID protocols and could they bring their children, you know, to the games or, and, you know, what have you. But, you know, there's some weird like gendered stuff around that, hmm. um, but sort of acknowledging the fact that um, that they have other people in their lives that they're that they, you know, but also like at one point I would just very much love for some guy to be like, "Uh, so what's it like to be an Olympian and a dad? How's that? (laughs) Like that interview doesn't happen. Yeah. Unless it's, you know, Tom Daly who overtly brings it up. And I think that, you know, he's kind of a perfect example of when you are in a place where you are um, a whole person and you can have a relationship Um, And it's been really great also just to listen to the um, in particular about him, Of you know, that they sort of they talk about his husband, Lance, without sort of making it a thing Mm -hmm. that there's there seems to be a lot more. um, There were a record number of out athletes, you know, this year, and I think that. You know, we kind of have mentioned before, we talked about it before, like, you know, when you're a whole person, you are able to be a better athlete and you're in a better headspace. And I think, you know, if we wanted to bring up the whole Simone Biles of it all, um, that I think being such a prominent athlete that that has opened a conversation that like we have been having behind closed doors for a long time.
3: You know, Leah, I think the the point you're making there about how mothers uh, compete at the games, it, it's really important to actually take on board the story of Allison um, Felix. Allison Felix, yeah, who had a contract with Nike, and whenever she got pregnant, Nike wanted to slash her contract by seventy per, or sorry, down to seventy percent. Um, and this was because you know she's obviously not going to be a performer, and you think about it like she's there as a sponsored athlete for Nike, and then been told no because you're having a kid, we're not going to give you a sponsorship. And it's like that kind of uh, relationship wouldn't occur in any other employee situation, and now you've got a professional athlete uh, being victimized by Nike um,
2: here in the states. I think I think so. Something I love about sports in general is that sports has the capacity to change the social landscape. Um, Because here in the States, we don't have any kind of protection. I mean, we have kind of a loose protection about not discriminating against pregnant people. Um, However, uh, it is common practice in the States for uh, birthing people to be significantly impacted by the choice to be pregnant and give birth um, on on salary, or maybe not salary, on hourly wages, um, on job opportunities, and on the ability to maintain your employment. And so, you know, I think that her situation really highlights what's problematic for birthing people in the United States, because that may not happen in other parts of the world in terms of, of that. But unfortunately, I think that that is helping maybe to change the conversation for all employed people um, who decide to, to give
1: birth.
0: Yeah, like I have very mixed emotions about it, because I mean, even when you look at, at things like you know, women or people who have had children, um, who have pictures of said children on their desk at work. Um, they tend to not, you know, versus their male counterparts who have children, pictures of their children at work and how those things are, are perceived very different ways in the United States. And I think that the best thing about, um, Allison Felix and being so vocal about this of like, you know, what the fuck Nike, uh, <laughs> and also like fuck you I'm gonna go get a different sponsorship and I'm gonna have my own fucking line and I'm gonna like you know I don't need you anymore and become the most decorated track and field athlete in American history and sucks to be you that you like, let me go you know and I think that's kind of like you know Nike does a really great job at marketing themselves and I think that this is a hard one to come back from that you know, oh, we only like women when they're performing.
1: So we talked a little bit already about the pressure and the stress that some of these athletes have been under and how it's nice to see them talking about that more openly and hearing the human side of, of what they're talking about. But, of course, some of the stress and pressure for these Olympic Games in particular has come from COVID. And I just wonder, you know, what, what do we think about that? How do you think that that has had an impact on some of these athletes, the lack of crowd, lack of friends and family? Do you, do you guys have any thoughts about that?
2: I think there's the obvious downsides of, you know, lack of um, people that can travel and support systems and fans. And I think that, you know, again, has a huge, a huge impact on the experience uh, for an athlete generally, um, as well as the, you know, reduced ability to actually enjoy the Olympic Village. And all of that really plays into the Olympic experience and if we put on a sports psych hat, then the performance, right, the, the experience impacts the performance. Um, but I, I will say, I do think that there are a lot of ways that there are a couple of silver linings. And, you know, I think that, you know, in, in all of the conversations about seeing athletes as real people, athletes talking about themselves as real people, openly and candidly and being vulnerable in, in various media stuff about them as people, I really, I think a lot of that is attributed to the shift we've seen with with COVID, that, you know, that when everyone had to kind of stop doing their sports or, or had to take pauses or had to come together in new and creative ways versus the status quo, grind, 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 I think that it, it bonded people together and people had a shared vulnerability that if I'm injured, maybe no one else I know is injured. So that's my own experience, but everybody was in it together. And I think that shared personhood really kind of continued on. And I think it really illuminated the fact that we all have these human experiences. Um, And so I really think a lot of that vulnerability and shift that we saw is probably was catapulted, uh, by the you know what COVID brought us. And so, you know, not that I wish that, that was the way it happened, um, but I think that there have been a couple of small benefits for balancing out some of the real downsides of um, you know, what what all of these changes and restrictions brought as well.
1: Mm. And, and obviously it affected different athletes in in different ways. Uh we had Jay Jones uh, in the Taekwondo who talked about the fact that she really missed having her friends and family there and you know she talked quite openly about how that affected her her performance um Hugh obviously you're involved in preparing athletes at the moment for the Paralympics can you tell us anything about how COVID has impacted their preparation or their thought processes or uh you know how is how is COVID affecting things there
3: well I actually just wanted to throw a shout out to Sophie McKenna who was our guest for season one Uh, and confidence is confidence overrated, episode six. Sophie competed in the shot put and unfortunately was one of the athletes who had to isolate, and this caused a degree of uh, weight loss, according to the news, um, because of whatever conditions she had to isolate in. So again, I think that's a a perfect example of the uncertainty. And I think for me, when I think of um, what these athletes are facing in terms of preparing them, as a sports psych uncertainty is is a lot more anxiety provoking than the certainty of a bad effect so i always say to people you know if i was to tell you in the morning i'm going to flip a coin and cut your finger off if it lands on heads uh would you be more anxious than if i told you i was going to be uh just you were going to get your finger cut off In the morning and the the research actually shows us that people are more anxious in situations of uncertainty Um, and i think the big thing for me is like when you're preparing these athletes for the games it's about where can you create certainty points i will know what and when will i know it by i need to know what and when will i know that by so again that's how we're going about preparing athletes for the games is by trying to create certainty points and provide the information of what we know and when we don't know it um, we we pr- provide a time point is when we will know. And we all know this. We all know that uncertainty provides uh, anxiety for us and, and a stress for us because has, if anyone's ever been called to an office by a superior or in school, you need, you need to go and see the principal. You need to go down to the office. You're like, oh no, what have I done? Uh, well, at least that, that's what I thought whenever I was getting called to the office in either work or a, at school. But I think <laughs> it is that uncertainty of not knowing what's ahead. So I think for me, that's the big point, Pete. What, what are your thoughts on that, Pete, and uh, COVID and the, how they affect on people and, and athletes? Well, I, I was thinking about how it impacted
1: the fans and those of us watching on television as well as the athletes. And it was just a very different experience watching it without the crowd noise and the atmosphere. You know, you're used to seeing the 100 meters and the flash bulbs going off and the roar of the crowd in the stadium. And all of a sudden, it's just this quiet, empty stadium. So it's really different for the fans watching, but different for the athletes too. What I really did like though was seeing the athletes and the coaches and the teams helping each other out by recreating or trying to create some of that atmosphere. So I think it was one of the jumping events. I can't remember which. I I think it might have been the high jump, but normally the athletes will clap their hands and try and get the audience to join in and clap in rhythm just to help them prepare for their their jump. Obviously, the crowd wasn't there, but what was really nice to see was all of the other coaches and the support staff uh, and even some of the other athletes helping out and just trying to create this atmosphere that would help essentially their rivals, their competitors. So I just thought it was a really nice thing to see all those athletes coming together like that. So all in all, it was just a really different Olympics, as we know. And we've heard stories about athletes that dealt with that really well. We've also heard stories about athletes that found it really difficult to deal with those different circumstances. Um, and, uh, there was a social element as well, you know, we're used to seeing athletes finishing their events and then going along to support each other, uh, and just kind of hang out after they finished competing in their own, uh, events. And I think we missed a little bit of that. I think the athletes probably missed a little bit of that as well. And I think we saw that in the closing ceremony as well. We kind of missed that, that atmosphere, seeing all of the athletes coming together. Um, so yeah, it was just a little bit more of a quiet celebration. So, you know, in talking about that and in talking about the human side, <clears throat> sorry, the human, uh, side of athletes and the fact that they've been so vocal in talking about themselves as people rather than just as athletes. And we've loved that about these Olympics. Uh, obviously the big story is Simone Biles and you mentioned her a little bit earlier, Leah. Um, you know, she, she withdrew from, uh, most of the events after the, uh, the, I uh, that up. Um, so Simone Biles obviously withdrew from the team. No, fuck my life. <laughs> no, she not Please don't edit it out.
0: <laughs> this is just on par for how this is all going yeah. today.
1: So during the team competition, Simone Biles decided to withdraw. And a couple of days later, we found out that there was uh, something specific going on with her. She described having the twisties, which we know is essentially something called lost move syndrome. I'm sure we'll get into that in a in a moment or two. Um, but you know, what were your initial reactions to Simone Biles deciding to withdraw, uh, Chelsea? What did what did you think when you heard that?
2: Uh, I think the first, my first reaction was like profound sadness because you know I you know spend my days in one on one meetings with athletes. That's, that's what I do. And so, you know, this profound sadness of, of really kind of understanding where someone would have to be emotionally and mentally to make that type of decision on the stage that they made it on. Um, and so, you know, at first it was like, oh my gosh, this is gut wrenching. And then there was this bubbling of like pride and I, and, and not, you know, I struggle with, with, glorifying, you know, mental health issues and, and that, that weird space. But um, I felt really proud that she was putting herself first, that she was engaging in a healthy level of selfishness of I have to take care of myself, protect myself and do what's best for me. And I know that that might have some ramifications. And so there was the the pride in her as a human and her a willingness to say, you know, I am the only one that will prioritize me. Um, and then, you know, I work with young athletes. So I mean, youngish, right? So 18 to 22 year olds who are still developing their frontal lobe and who are still figuring out who they are as people. Um, and for the the student athletes I've been working with this summer, you know, they talked about wow, like either a, I wish I had been able to do that in the the peak of some of my mental struggles um, on this smaller stage, or it's really validating that I'm not crazy and that you know I have had issues too. Um, and so it was a, a a mix of kind of sadness and and pride, um, and then hope. It, it gave me a lot of hope that. You know, we are seeing some of these conversations shift. We are starting to acknowledge athletes as people. Not everyone and not all the time, but we're, we're starting. We're starting to acknowledge them as people. And that gives me a lot of hope. You know, again, sitting with athletes every day, it can feel really heavy sometimes. And so I felt really hopeful that the trajectory for the athletes I work with is is going to become more and more positive and more and more encompassing of who they are as people. Um, and so I think overall, you know, really hard, really messy, a lot of weeds to to sift through. But overall, it was a a, a really powerful time.
1: And I think we'll get into that as, again a little bit later on. Um, some of the environment that, that makes what Simone Biles did uh, something worthy of, of, of talking about. But um, Leah, let's talk about the twisties because you're, a, you're an ex-gymnast as well as being a sports psychologist and general badass. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the twisties is for people who may still not be familiar with that?
0: Yeah, so the twisties, and I don't know, Telsea, have you ever experienced them as a diver?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was,
2: uh, yeah, in diving, I was bad.
0: So so the twisties basically is when you are as a diver or a gymnast or an acrobat of some kind that you do not know where you are in the air. So a lot of people don't realize that when you're flipping and twisting, you actually, you can see where you are, you look for landmarks, you can see the ground, you can see the bar, you look at the beam, you know, and you have a sense of how fast you're going. You you know where everything is. And so, which allows you to make these complicated moves to know where the bar is so that you can grab it. You know where the landing is so when you can prepare for it. Um, and when you don't have any of that information, it is terrifying. It is because you just are like, um, I guess I'll die. I guess my, I hope it's not my face that lands first. Like, and it's literally like, I don't know, whatever, like we're gonna hit the ground at some point. um, And hopefully it's not my face. Um, So it's really, really scary. It's, it's, um, basically... Your the semicircular canals in your ear are not communicating the um, rotational information, the height information, the speed information to your brain, and so your brain is not getting any input or any sensory input, um, and so it's you're basically really lost and you're totally flying blind.
2: It reminds me, like for people who who still like the, it's it's hard to relate to. It's like a weird experience of like. Vertigo and the spins when you're really drunk, um, but while performing acrobatic activities instead of like just while walking across a room and where you just are so disoriented. um, And again, but with the risk of paralysis and death uh, rather than just like throwing up, which is, you know, what you might experience with vertigo or, or the spins. Um, you know, I think that that's... I think a lot
0: of surfers also experience it when they get tumbled oh, underwater, um, that makes sense. when they crash from a wave and they kind of don't know where the land is. They don't know where up is. They don't know where the floor of the ocean is.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I don't like, um, water that I can't see to the bottom of cause I don't do creatures, but, uh, the couple of times when I was dumb and young and would do kind of body surfing, you know, yeah. When you get tumbled by that wave, again, it's that disorientation and, and, you know, it, similar to that I mean I imagine with surfers it's that like I'm gonna die I'm about to drown feeling right it it I think it really it's not just scary from like a cognitive level I think it also creates a little bit of that fight or flight where like I don't know if I might die and so now I'm I am now heightened and it's just a whole mess of a situation
3: I I don't even think in this regard Like, I'm not a gymnast but I have fell over a few times Um, (laughs) but but even in this regard, you know, it's not even about um, just will this kill me. The the story of Elena Mukina, um, the Russian gymnast who was rushed back to compete for the nineteen eighty Summer Olympics, uh, the the Russian coaches cut off her cast, and she was attempting uh, a move called the Thomas Salto uh, in in training, and she ended up uh, basically breaking her neck and becoming a quadriplegic so I think you know for people who don't know anything about gymnastics it's not the sort of thing where if it goes wrong you get a sprained ankle or even something nasty like an ACL it's potentially life-changing and, and you know you're going to be walking with a limp permanently if you're lucky uh, if not you, you might be ended up in very serious state of disability so I think you know that's something that we don't see because we don't see those types of injuries at the Olympics because these are experienced professionals. Um, but, you know, go into your garden and try doing three forward rolls and spin around in a circle and, and let me know how many times you land on your bum.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things I think is, that is really hard with gymnastics sometimes is that there's no frame of reference. For a lot of people that like you can look at a runner and be like, I have run before and I know that they are running much faster than me. Whereas most people can have like they can do like maybe a cartwheel. And so it's like there's no concept of like how exponentially harder the the moves that these gymnasts are doing. And it's like it's kind of like I know what a hundred dollars is, but I don't know what a billion dollars is like. And so it's, you know, that kind of like there's, there's no concept of like how big these moves are, how much strength you need to do them and how dangerous that they can potentially really be. When they get to the point at the Olympics, they shouldn't be that dangerous because they have, they've overlearned them. They've been doing them for years. Like, you know, they probably have been doing that floor routine for four years at that point. Cause you get a new one after the last Olympics. And then, so that's why the other level, the other layer to this is that you are the most fit. You are the most prepared. You are the like maxed out. And so when you, all of a sudden you lose that, it's even more disruptive. Actually, can I just add one thing, Pete, before we, yeah, of we course. move on? Because I think there's been, there's been at least in some of my like sports medicine, athletic training circles, like a lot of conversation about like, what are they? Cause like, you know, there's just, it's not a huge sport you know, is this a mental issue or is this a physical issue? And, you know, that, you know, she's having these mental problems and this is why Simone had to withdraw. And then there were posts of like, no, actually it's because of, you know, this, like I said, the semicircular canal disruption and not getting the input from your brain. And, you know, well, it's definitely a physical issue. And, and you know, the point that I keep, that that has been really frustrating to me is like, no it's both like I don't know about you Chelsea but I have never I've worked with a number of athletes who've had this issue um, and I've never seen one without the other a lot of times these twisties or the this lost movement syndrome is predicated by uh, periods of high stress and anxiety and so, to me, and this is the thing that I that I get really frustrated in general of like there is no physical health, there is no mental health, there is just health. Like when we when you even when you think about just how you feel, like when you're anxious on a day-to-day basis, like you get, you know, muscle tension, you start to sweat, maybe you get some GI distress, like there's all these physiological responses to this psychological state of being anxious. And so this is just like a bigger manifestation of you know on a much grander scale of it's a physiological response
2: to the psychological state of being in distress when i'm feeling particularly snarky i like to ask people where the brain is and they'll tell me it's in their head like in their body and i'll be like oh my god wait your brain's in your body like so it's part of like your physical being so it's maybe part of your physical health and I usually just get an eye roll, but I'm good with that. Um, but I mean, right? Like that's that's the whole the thing. The whole concept is, of like, oh, it's right. just in your head. Well, obviously, where the fuck else would it be? Which is on my body, which is part of, which is on my physical being. So I mean, physical and mental health are often one and the same. It is about whether there is a physiological material or a more uh, abstract intervention that's going to be the most impactful in that moment.
3: This reminds me of the chat we had with uh, Dr. Mona Rivenin-Borrow and Dr. Damien Clent in uh, episode four of season two. We talked about how athletes actually get injured at their peak because, as as Leah's pointed out, they're the fittest they've ever been. They're, they're the fastest and strongest and, and that's the highest point of risk. So while, you know, there's this element of we are the most prepared we're also moving at speeds we've never moved at before. We're moving with uh, strengths and velocities that are, are are new to us potentially, and that again can contribute to this loss of of control. So I think there's there's something in that about like understanding the stress both that causes maybe injuries and then also the ability to recover them. Um, so well, and I
0: mean, think, you think about like when you are under stress, like you've got this muscle tension, so your biomechanics are going to change, right? You are highly distractible. So you don't have the same, you know, awareness of what you're going. And we also know that your, you know, your peripheral vision narrows, so you can't even see everything that you want to see. And so it's no wonder that, you know, you are at higher risk for injury when you are stressed. And so for me as a sports medicine professional um, with this, expertise in sports psychology, like I perceive stress management and anxiety management and arousal regulation as injury prevention, right? That it's not just we, I always see these athletes after their injury. And it's so frustrating because I'm like, we could have like intervened beforehand and avoided this altogether. And this is one of the things that was so frustrating about this, you know, watching Simone Biles is like, it never should have gotten to this point. She never should have had to be to the point where she had to withdraw. If we had, if she had felt supported in her life for any number of reasons that we could speculate about, that it should never have escalated to the point where she had to feel like she had to withdraw for her own safety.
3: I think the, the one other point that I'm going to make here, uh, and just to hit home on what you've said, Leah, is that we're looking at this from a performance point of view, and we're not considering the last eight or ten years of the trauma that Simone Biles has been through with uh, American Gymnastics and I think it's really important that people understand the full extent of that history and and how that might be carried by her Um, and I would encourage people to watch the documentary about that I think it's called Athlete A if I'm right Um, so again it's a big thing within uh, clinical psych is how people carry that trauma
0: yeah, and I, and the thing that was my most frustrating thing is, like, oh, she's so brave to, like, and I'm, like, I, I always feel like people are, like, oh, this bravery bullshit is, like, we're hanging, like, a live, laugh, love, you know, poster in, like, a burning building. I'm, like, the whole, the whole building should be condemned. Like, putting up this nice little, like, picture is not going to make a difference. Like, we need to fix the structure of USA Gymnastics. Like, and a, a lot of these like insular organizations generally, um, and that people become very passionate about, um, issues, particularly I think around gymnastics, because there is sort of like this exoticism of the sport. We only see it every four years. They're cute girls there and they do amazing things. And like, I need you to care more than every four years. <laughs> like, that's what I need from you.
1: Uh, interestingly, Hugh, you you mentioned trauma there and Leah, you just talked about the absolute bin fire that's been USA Gymnastics for the last however many years. Um, but Dr. Jen Bennett, who's now Dr. Jen Gandhi wrote her PhD on lost move syndrome. And, And the research in this area points to the potential role of unresolved trauma in the development of lost move syndrome and the yips which is a related uh slightly different but related um, disorder and that this all kind of starts to make a little bit more sense given what we know about the whole usa gymnastics thing and what simone biles and, and some of the other athletes uh have been through uh, but there's some great research in this area if people want to go and read some more about it and learn more about the yips and lost move syndrome and what it actually is and how it manifests uh what we can do is we can put a link to maybe some of those papers in the Uh, in the episode description but um, I I, I do want to come back to this idea of bravery and the idea that Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and uh, Adam Peaty that Leah mentioned are somehow brave for talking about their mental health and in a way it is brave but it's only really brave in a particular context in the context of sport that we have kind of created um Back in, the, back in the 90s, a couple of sociologists, Robert Hughes and Jay Coakley, talked about the sport ethic. And I think it's something that we've talked about on the podcast before, but basically it was this idea that athletes buy into about what it means to be a real athlete. So the sport ethic was all about this notion that in order to be a great athlete, you have to make sacrifices, you have to accept risk, you have to push through emotional and physical pain. And look, all of this is true of course you have to make sacrifices and of course you have to push to the limits if you want to be the best in the world at anything but what's happened is we've taken this idea and we've warped it we've changed it into something different so fans media even sport organizations themselves have warped these ideas so that we believe that athletes have to push well beyond their limits that they should give their blood sweat tears and soul for us for our entertainment um so that we can watch them on television anything less than that is somehow unacceptable now obviously not everybody buys into that idea but the fact that we have a, a media that talks about this idea of winning at all costs and we have some fairly influential social comment. Uh, social commentators who are saying these types of things that these athletes have somehow failed or, or used excuses or they've quit or whatever just perpetuates that idea that they have to be superhuman, they have to be invulnerable to stress and to pressure, and that winning is the most important thing. So, what's happened is, like I say, we've created this context in which daring to speak out about mental health is seen as brave. What really happened with Simone Biles was that a young woman made a decision about her own well-being and really that should have been the beginning and the end of that story. Uh, Dr. Marina Harris has written brilliantly on this idea that we've taken toughness and grit and resilience and all these ideas and shaped them into something else. So what we'll do is we'll put a link to that article which I absolutely recommend that everybody reads. We'll put that in the description for this episode. So we're talking to Dr. Leah Washington and Dr. Chelsea Day about the Olympics. This is Pete and Hugh's Olympic review. We've talked about our favourite moments. We've talked about um, some of the more human stories of the Olympics, and we talked about Simone Biles. Obviously, the big story was her withdrawal from some of the uh, uh, some of the competitions. She did come back and compete in the in the individual beam, uh, and again, talk about Olympic moments. Just seeing her complete that routine, and again, the expression on her face and the just joy of being able to just get out there and do it, I think was was another one of those fantastic moments. Okay, so we're involved in sports psych, right? So what moments represented mental greatness? Where did you see the application of mental training or mental conditioning or mental skills or whatever you want to call it? Uh Leah, you go first.
0: I have a few. Um one, I think we've already talked about the women's um volleyball. Clearly Um, outstanding mental skills. Uh, Also, um, I want to give a shout out to the individuals who did in the opening ceremony when they did the pictographs. There was a high pressure situation. They did amazing. There was one little bobble, and just their ability to go through and the cameraman, the the people doing the pictographs, like they were just crushing it. And the, like, they had to do it all in one take. They had to do it live. They had like amazing pressure. I think that was outstanding. Um, and then also, I just also want to mention the, um, uncooperative horse in the modern <laughs> pentathlon, um, taking a note from Simone Biles and other athletes that, did not feel comfortable participating and opted out. And I think that that was great, that there was um, horse-athlete uh, solidarity in our quest for mental health.
1: Chelsea, what about you? What was what some of the, and I, I, we might come back to the whole horse thing later, I don't know. Uh, Chelsea, what about you? What were some of your moments that represented uh, mental greatness?
2: Yeah, I think I think my two favorite moments that I mentioned were probably the two mental greatness for for different reasons than why they were my favorite. You know, I think that um, both both Tom Daly and Suni Lee had this incredible pressure on them. Um, you know, with Tom Daly coming in and really needing to perform and and having this kind of buildup of not quite getting there, and that he gracefully was able to tap into that mental training and, and show that. Um, he's capable. Uh, And then I think, you know, with Suni Lee, really this idea that all eyes were on Simone and she was the story. And then suddenly, you know, Suni Lee is in the spotlight and having to take on some of that pressure. um, And and again, as young people, and then just absolutely killing it and showing that, you know, that pressure can be uh, crippling. Um, and both of them, you know, showed that they had the mental fortitude to be able to overcome that and perform at the highest level in the world, uh, I think is just such a, an indication of that mental skills and kind of mental toughness that we we hear talked about a lot.
0: I think the other members of the gymnastics team, like, you know, Michaela sure. Skinner and Jordan George, George Childs, Jake Carey, who had to kind of come in cold um because i think a lot of people don't realize that like when you do the um the event finals are a little bit different in that you don't get your 30 second touch warm up um beforehand and so you have your warm up and then you have to sit through this whole long meet and then you have to compete you don't get a chance to like uh get on the equipment before you go which is they do normally in in the other events um and so you you really are coming in cold which is why also the uh, the event finals look like a mess um, but that's a whole other conversation, but these gymnasts, they had to like step up with like at the last second and, and
2: like, they were about like, to be on airplanes home and then they suddenly were literally
0: like, hmm. the I didn't know yeah.
1: that. I didn't know that they don't necessarily get a, a proper warm up. It's like, you literally just walk out and have to have to perform on yeah. cue almost. Um,
0: which is why they always look like they're falling, they're wobbling and everybody's like, Oh, they're so tired. No, oh. they just haven't been on that equipment in four hours. Like.
1: Hugh, you mentioned um, team breathing when we spoke the other day as an example. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that?
3: Yeah, I think it was the Fijian team, if I remember rightly. Uh, they all did like a face certain direction and did a synchronized breathing reset at a halftime, which I think is quite good. Like, there's, a, there's a lot of research behind you know, deep breathing, but I've never seen it done as a team environment um, where the team all participate and do it the exact same way uh, in the middle of a competition so i thought that was quite interesting um i just hope it's not going to turn into one of these things uh like the all blacks where everybody starts handing out brushes and telling each other to sweep sheds so they can have a culture because that's just nonsense um so yeah i think it's, these things are useful if they're done for the purpose and not because successful teams do them i think if i'm right the fijian team took away bronze so uh, and it was a female rugby as well can can I also just point out as well Pete um the idea about the the horse you know when I saw the picture of the rider upset and the horse upset I kind of thought like that was just class it's like a perfect perfect synchrony of uh, emotional contagion because we not normally talk about emotional contagion and what you bring to the environment you know between humans but like we definitely know that animals can also sense when somebody's nervous or somebody's up to something so I think like it's a good, a good thing for people to realize that what you bring to an environment transfers. And maybe in that case, maybe the athlete will brought in the nerves and that's why the, the horse actually maybe got upset and didn't want to jump. So, uh, and obviously it just spiraled out of control, um, as the, these things tend to do.
0: And I think also in the modern pentathlon, it's not their horse. Like they, uh, they have a series, they have a, horses are assigned to them so it's an unfamiliar um animal that they're riding not like in in a venting or dressage I,
1: i i think the horse had actually previously refused another rider so the german athlete was already pretty nervous going into that event knowing what the horse had previously done hugh you were going to say something
3: well, yeah i just also like the fact that they have to ride unknown horses because one of the things that annoys me about cycling is that you know they've got so much technology in these bikes that it's hardly fair for countries with less of a budget and wouldn't it be great if you had to bring a bike that somebody else had to ride so you had to all swap bikes and make cycling so fair and like the other thing is <laughs> cycling and swimming are the two sports where people can win loads of medals that kind of makes me think that those sports aren't of the same value because they're essentially just the same sport being repeated. It's like, how often and how well can you splash a distance, um, you know? And then can you do a different splash and get a different distance? Like that's not different enough it's to be a, a different take. sport. And yet you get people winning multiples of medals. So like I think there should only be one swimming and one cycling event uh, in in it. So that's. But I feel like I that's like the, the entirety of the Winter
0: Olympics is like who can fall with the most style in which different event, like do you slide down a mountain? Do you fall down a mountain? Do you jump down a mountain? Like that's all of
1: the winter Olympics. But so. I, I think if we, if you break down sports far enough, they all become ridiculous. <laughs> in some respect. But you know, spe- speaking of, uh, of ridiculous things, what do we think about the new sports? Cause obviously there were five new sports debuted at Tokyo. There was baseball and softball speed climbing, which was just like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Calm down. Uh, skateboarding, karate and surfing. I didn't actually see any of the surfing, but what, what, oh, surfing what do you Oh, the surfing was
0: outstanding. Was it? Yeah.
1: So what, what do you think then, Leah, about those new sports?
0: I mean, the thing that I like about the surfing is like you're sort of at the whim of the ocean and like do you get a wave or not? And so it's like there's this added element of unexpectedness that you have to get. You have to compete with whatever you're given, kind
2: of.
1: Chelsea?
2: I... I, I struggle a little bit with new events or events. I'm going to be honest and sorry, Leah, there are events. I didn't realize are events that have been events for a long time, but apparently like maybe I knew that cognitively I've seen it on a list, but I hadn't seen it before. And I'd see a clip of it and be like, what the hell is that? That's an Olympic sport. Um, And so I really struggle getting on board because I feel so overwhelmed by all of the different sports. Uh, When I came to Ohio state, we have 36 sports here. And um I had never worked with pistol and rifle. And now like I'm a huge fan of pistol and the culture of pistol is like the most wonderful, hilarious, could make a wonderful like mockumentary out of it. It's incredible. But I just struggle with like I like things that I know about and things that I don't understand kind of blow my mind and just feel hard. And there are just so many sports like baseball and softball. I know those. Those are very American, you know, we see them all the time. But like a lot of these other sports that I, I'm, I'm landlocked. I'm in the middle of the United States. Like I don't see surfing. I don't get on surfboards. I don't know how to do that. I don't understand the physics of any of it. And so I struggle with a lot of these of like, we just keep adding more things um, to where like, it's harder for me to learn and understand all of them. And to care about them. And I feel like there's just too many for me to care about all of them. If I don't personally like work in those sports or know people that do those sports or have some good human interest story, if ESPN hasn't given me a reason to care about that person that does that niche sport. So I just, I'm getting a little overwhelmed with all the sports and my husband works for USA football, which is pushing and working with international flag football to hopefully have flag football in the Olympics in eight years or seven years. And like, I just, so I'm really for that because of my personal tie and against us just adding new sports all the time. It's too much. It's overwhelming that we need to, we need to like one for one, put one in, take one out. It's gotta be like a a one, one for one for me.
0: No, I need more athletes. I need more sports. (laughs) I need all the sports. I need all the athletes. (laughs)
3: I think what's interesting for me about the new sports is that it really felt as if there was connecting a generation uh, to a new generation of kids to the Olympics. And one of the most, you know, poignant things that people keep saying about the Olympics is it inspires the next generation for health and fitness. And I don't know that there's a definite link to that, but I think there's going to be a hell of a lot stronger link whenever we see people doing sports that kids have access to, you know. A BMX bike doesn't have to cost earth and neither does a skateboard. Uh, and I suppose, again, with breakdancing, again, you don't need much for that. So I think like the idea of adding new sports that are accessible and that are relatable to your youth, to me, can only be a sure thing for growth. I mean, there's definitely sports in there that I just can't relate to and, if I'm frankly honest, don't care about. Um, But, again... That's that's just the way of the world, isn't it? We don't have to like everything, and that's why, why we've got loads of different things at the games. Um, so I think it's a good thing.
2: I like that point, Hugh. I hadn't thought about that, about connecting a new generation. And so my previous answer about being a little bit of a get off my long curmudgeon about the new sports, I think that <laughs> you've like changed my mind on that, of you know, really thinking about the the kind of new generation of athletes and the sports that they are liking and that they're into and creating space for them to kind of bridge that gap between, you know, the the tried and true events. And so I really, I really like that perspective and uh and I've, I've converted my answer to um I like the new sports.
1: Are you are you allowed to
3: change answers? Can we Yeah do it was that
2: one? easy? Yep. I did it. Okay, I did it. Enough. You can't stop me.
3: No, you know you're right. I can't yeah. <laughs> so uh, I have changed your mind. I'll send you the bill <laughs> for that.
2: Uh just put it on Pete's tab.
1: No, but I, I, I kind of agree though. Again, this is twice in the same episode, I've agreed with you. But you know, I like um I really like the skateboard and the BMX and I loved the climbing, especially the speed climbing. I just thought they were really exciting to watch and they were a breath of fresh air, really. What I didn't like was the three on three basketball. That was rubbish. breakdancing is going to be a new sport in 2024 in Paris. Um, I can see Chelsea pulling a face there like what, (laughs) but yeah, breakdancing. So I, I think sometimes these new sports are controversial. Um, instead of asking you what you would like to see in the Olympics, I'm going to ask you to give me some suggestions as to how to make existing sports better. So I'll give you an example. Um, we, we actually had a conversation a few weeks ago, Leah and Chelsea and I, about something called International King of Sports, uh, which was broadcast about 20 years ago in the UK. And one of the sports, one of my favorite sports, was a 100-meter sprint. But instead of running in a straight line, you had to run around a 10-meter circular track as fast as you could, which I just thought was awesome. Underwater shot put was another one as well. Um, so rather than new sports that you'd like to see in the Olympics, how would you make existing sports better? What improvements would you make? Leah?
0: Well, I think one, I think we should take the long jump or the triple jump because the triple jump for what, what are we doing? I don't understand that one. Um, but if we made it a slip and slide, <laughs> I I could totally get into that. I think that the, instead of the long jump, we just <laughs> slip and slide. Um, I also think we should uh, reintroduce. I'm sure that you probably have something similar in the UK, a beer mile after every lap, you have to chug a beer, um, Interesting. I think that would be. And then uh, I think the most important addition, now that we have skateboarding in the Olympics, I think the most um, we can get out of it is that I think every skateboarder should uh, compete with an open bottle of ocean spray juice.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm absolutely 100% behind all of those suggestions. So while we're talking about making changes to sports, I have a question for you, uh, for you, Leah, in particular. Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I love the mixed relays in the Olympics, um, the swimming and the athletics. I thought they were absolutely brilliant. Yeah, so good. Uh, partly because I didn't have a fucking clue who was winning until right near the end. <laughs> um, but I, I love the mixed relays and because why not?
0: Why Literally, not why that? not?
1: Right. Um, well, they
0: started it in the winter in the Pyeongchang in the Winter Olympics with that bobsleigh. Where they had yeah. the mixed, and I was like, "This is amazing. Let's keep doing all of this, please." But
1: but there's literally no reason not to. So, but I, I love them anyway. But the, the the question was, you know, in the name of gender equality, would you rather see fewer sequins on women's gymnastics mm-hmm. or more sequins in men's gymnastics?
0: Oh, more sequins always. I think with, there's a there's an option for more sequins. I think we should have more sequins.
1: Because, you know, watching the gymnastics, it it was really apparent in a way for me anyway that maybe, I don't want to say I hadn't really noticed it before because I had, but just that, you know, the men's gymnastics is a display of athleticism, Mm -hmm. pure and simple. The women's gymnastics is a display of athleticism with smiling and winking at the judges, (laughs) which is just weird when you're thinking about it. So, you know, we, we started to see a little bit more, uh, uh, people taking action in terms of gender equality. So you had the German gymnastics team wearing the full length leggings, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, just while we're talking about changing, changing sports.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of, I think also, I think it was the, was it the Norwegian netball team or handball team? Mm-hmm. Um, the women's team was fine for wearing uh, the, handball. The key, yeah. Was it? Right. Which, and there was some in 2016 in Rio where there were some beach volleyball players who, um, I think from you know, Iran, who wanted to be fully covered. And people were, you know, there was a lot of discussion about that. And, you know, and for me, it, I think it's about options. It's not whether you should have to wear one or the other, but if you wanted to wear this one, you can. And if you want to wear that one, you also can. Um, but I think in terms of gender equality, You know, I had this thought, I was having this thought about, like, this idea of this, the sequin effect, where when there are more sequins, the sport is taken less and less seriously. And so when you look at, like, rhythmic gymnastics, and you look at artistic swimming, um, that they, they look very flashy, and they look very, like, I think people kind of put them more in like a like a circus like circus du Soleil kind of like category, yeah. and not not to say that obviously those performers are incredible athletic performers, um, but that feels more like entertainment to some people, like showgirl type um, yeah. categories. Um, you know, I, like I was I was a gymnast. I am fully uh, accustomed to glitter and sequins as an athletic trainer for a gymnastics team. Uh, you know my medical kit had glitter on it for like years afterwards because it was just like embedded in the fabric um (laughs) it's the gift that keeps on giving um
1: well it's your favorite color as well glitter it is my favorite from the the previous episode
0: that's exactly right um but i think also i think it's you know a lot of it is it's taken less seriously because it implies a certain amount of femininity and even when you look at um like men's figure skating in the winter olympics that there are like a lot of like wink wink nudge nudge like they're not as masculine athletes as
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: yeah. as other athletes and um which is so, so dumb and like
1: <laughs> what is that i mean
0: you know it's just dumb like like a sparkly shirt makes you more or less <laughs> masculine i don't i don't get it but i think it's really interesting you know, I was thinking a lot about like the Winter Olympics and and like this idea of like the men who wear sparkles are perceived to be less masculine or more gay or whatever. And then you have like Gus Kenworthy out here, who's like a slope skier who's like the most dude bro of all dude bros, and comes out as gay on you know ESPN magazine. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like uh, okay, like where, how do you reconcile? those two things like it doesn't make you know it's like you can't there's no there are no boxes right like we got to move away from that and so I think when I you know look at like women's gymnastics and men's gymnastics there's this there's this weird combination I think with women's gymnastics of at least historically they've been younger girls um they're they're perceived to be like the there's the sort of like pixie quality you know that that has been, I think, less now than it was maybe in the 90s, but for sure, like, has carried over, because they're also, they're very petite, and,
1: Mm.
0: you know, they do very spectacular things, and they're very sparkly, and they get a lot of attention. They've been very successful. And so it's like this confluence of events, right? And it's interesting that, you know, you think about that hasn't happened with, with either rhythmic gymnastics or with artistic swimming. Um, And I'm partially wondering if, because gymnastics has a a men's component to it that you don't see in those two other sports, that they're, again, are taken less seriously. They're not given as much attention. Um, And what is really interesting is when you read the rules of who is allowed to participate in um, rhythmic gymnastics versus who's allowed to participate in Um, artistic swimming, they do have a category in artistic swimming for um, a duet and they have a category for a mixed duet, but the mixed duet is allowed. So that would be a male swimmer and a female swimmer. um, It's allowed at the world championship level and it's not allowed at the Olympic level. Whereas if you read the rules in rhythmic gymnastics, um, they're very gender neutral. They, they refer to athletes and they refer to gymnasts. So even from that perspective there's like some weird gendering in and like the rules and guidelines um i feel like sadly you know that there would be a very similar effect for rhythmic gymnastics and artistic swimming to this perception of like the manliest of manly men are not going to be the ones who participate in, in those competitions um but I I don't think it would be unwelcome. And I feel like, why would you limit, why would you not allow people to participate? You know, I'm always for, like I said, I'm always for more athletes, more access, more, more opportunities. And Mm -hmm. if there's some little boy out there who wants to toss a ball and throw clubs and, you know, twirl ribbons, like, I, yes, please. Like, why would you not let him do that, you know? And why would you not let other athletes have that opportunity? I don't understand, you know? And if that means that the men's singlets or sport shirts that they're actually called um, needs a few sparkles on it, then like, let's (laughs) do it. Like, that's, I'm all for it.
1: So opportunity, choice, and sparkles all around, basically.
0: Pretty much i mean you know if we're going to really talk about equality like let's talk about equality and equality doesn't just mean i think you know women having access to um you know opportunities that men have but also that there are men and boys out there who probably would like to be an artistic swimmer and Mm -hmm. they aren't allowed to and i think that's really sad and that really sucks for them like so for me it's It's about access on any number of levels and, you know, sparkles at every level.
1: And Chelsea, how about you then? Rather than adding sports, what improvements would you like to see?
2: Yeah, I think that like the throwing events, we should have them throw like different household items of varying weights that are um, like, related to the culture of the location that the Olympics are in. So, um, you know, just like,
1: I need some examples. so
2: like in, if it was in the States, we could throw like giant um, oversized food portions, right? Because it's, we like, it's a thing we do really well. Um, or, um, you know, in China, they could have maybe thrown like, big electronics, right? Because they make some of the best electronics. So like we could throw big TVs and just like varying things, um, things that are culturally appropriate to-, to throw, but you know, that would be like very much like, hey, like this is something that you would see here. Let's throw, you've you've practiced throwing very standardized things. Mm. Now you also have to throw these other bizarre
1: things. (laughs) So would these things have to add up to the same weight or would it just be like random? No, you just,
2: random, random. You've trained for one, and maybe you do both, right? Like, so it's a combined score of, you know, it's like with gymnastics, right? You have like your difficulty, you've got like the two scores that get added. Same type of thing where like, you know, yeah. we you have both. So I think that would be really fun. Um, I do. I love Hugh's idea of, like, swap a bike. So, um, like, you have to – everyone brings whatever bike you want. And it's like a holiday party, you know, where you can, like – you take a number and then you can kind of steal and trade. Like a white elephant party. Mm-hmm. I think you could do that. Like, everyone puts their bikes in. You pull a number. You get to pick whichever bike you want. Um, but you can kind of trade and steal. It would be really, really fun for, for me, not for um, – for the writers. The um, and then I think there should be like, like different, um, like grab bag things too, like swimming. So Hugh, great point, lots of events, but like you're, you should also have to like show up and you get to swim the event you qualified in and then you draw out of a hat and now you have to swim some other events, see how you can do against other random people in those events. Like, I think that's what we should do where, what those things do is it's similar to having random people like, like me, like if I go and compete in an event next to someone, it will show you just how good they are. Um, but it would be other Olympians. So, you know, or maybe having people, you know, do a different sport on occasion, like a fun, like a fun event. Maybe it doesn't, you know, different metal. It's got a, a, little fun twist to it. I think those types of things would get more. Just like a, like sh- like if LeBron James had to swim a 50 meter swim
1: right just like a try out a, a tryout different yeah. sport day yeah
2: yeah fun day like yeah. field day yeah well, okay.
3: you well I kind of think the addition of crocodiles to this swimming would be uh, really beneficial um, and this isn't um, this <laughs> this isn't too far-fetched because an Australian swimming coach called Mark Davies um basically decided to motivate his swimmers once and he uh this is seven-year-olds to 20-year-olds and he would uh, drop a crocodile into the swimming pool no. but he had the jaw wired shut ju- just for safety but like it would give you a bit of a claw on i suppose but i kind of think of these swimmers like just going so fast as <laughs> bound to been world, world record set in his training sessions um but as mark davies r- reportedly said it wouldn't hurt him it's just a little freshy, a little freshwater crocodile. <laughs> so um, the that that's what I want to see. I want to see crocodiles in the Olympics because we have horses. Let's get crocodiles in.
2: Mm. The I think the crocodiles would have an unfair advantage though because you have to go back and forth across the pool. So the crocodile could just camp out in the middle, like if it's open water. I think an open water crocodiles would be a good addition, but they have an unfair advantage in a yeah, pool,
1: just sort of meandering around randomly, yeah, up and taking a snap. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, mean, I, I agree. I kind of like the the idea of adding danger or more danger to some of these sports, like, um, a hundred meters, but with a brick wall at the end of it. So you have to stop like dead on a hundred meters <laughs> or like the, uh, the climbing, cause I was really impressed by the climbing, but I thought what would have made a nice addition was not having a rope and having a pit of sharks underneath, uh, I think the added element of, of. Of danger, I think. Uh, for, for or like some.
2: spray it down with ice, like like chilled water, so it's slippery.
1: Right. Or like some of the uh, some of the handholds, if that's what they're called, are like fake ones. So like you have oh, to oh,
2: there's pop gauge off.
1: which one. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would add a uh, add a bit of excitement, certainly.
2: <laughs> that would make our jobs a lot harder. Oh. I would have a lot more difficult time prepping athletes for Olympic games with those added.
1: Um, well, this is something else to think about, obstacles. isn't it?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I think this is all we've got time for, unfortunately. Uh which is a shame because we could carry on talking about this for a long time. There's so much more to discuss. Um but unfortunately we're out of time. So it's just left for me to thank our guests, Dr. Leah Washington. Thank you for joining us again on the 80% mental podcast. I hope you've enjoyed talking about your favorite topic in the world, apart from Dachshunds, uh, the Olympics. So thanks for joining us.
0: Listen, anytime we get to talk about the Olympics, it's a great day.
1: Well, I know that, that's why we couldn't do this without
0: you. As you As you well know, I will talk about the Olympics forever.
1: And Dr. Chelsea Day, thank you for giving up your time today as well. We really appreciate you coming back on 80% Mental for our Olympic review.
2: Always a pleasure and with some of my favorite people, so couldn't be better.
1: So what have we learned then today? Well, we've learned that social media ruined the Olympics for Chelsea. Um, (laughs) but, But we've also learned that although we saw some great performances at the Olympic Games, what really stood out was the human stories that really captured our attention and captured our imagination. And maybe we can't and shouldn't, separate those those things we talked about simone biles and the twisties the big story of the olympic games and leah talked about this idea that we can't and again shouldn't separate mental health and physical health we talked about the idea that it's only brave to talk about mental health because of the conditions that we've created and we all have a role to play in that We talked about moments of mental greatness from our athletes, dealing with a games that was carried out in conditions that are very, very different to what we've seen before, obviously with the impact of COVID. And we talked about how much we enjoyed or didn't enjoy some of the new sports, as well as some improvements that we might make to the old ones. If you've enjoyed our Olympic review episode, check out all our other episodes at 80percentmental.com. 80 percent mental is all words and leave a comment or get in touch on Twitter at EPM Podcast or Instagram at 80% Mental. What do you think of the new sports? What were your favorite moments of the Olympics? A quick shout out to everybody who has bought us a coffee as well. Hugh loves his coffee. And you can support what we're doing. You can support the 80% Mental Podcast by going to the website, we really hope you've enjoyed this one. And if you have, look out for our Paralympic review episode coming in a few weeks. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Well, we won't see you. It's a podcast.